Before we go in, let's stand and, and pray and ask that the Lord would be with us as we open up his word. Lord Jesus, we come before you, God, and we open up your words that you have left for us, God. You have loved us, and you have not left us without instruction. I thank you for every word in your holy book that you have passed on to us throughout the centuries, Lord, millennia. Lord, we worship you, and we pray that as we open up your word right now, that you would speak into all of our hearts, God. Help us see you. Help us know you. Help us hear from you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you, and we pray this in the precious name of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Um, they gave me one of these today, so I, I think they want me to click through the slides. So we'll, we'll give it a shot, see if, how good I am at multitasking. But I do want to ask, um, when you think the chapter of love in the Bible, what's the chapter that comes to mind? Shout it out. 1 Corinthians 13, thank you. 1 Corinthians 13, and, and you wouldn't be wrong, right? It, it truly is the chapter of love. It's very explicit. But what's interesting is that, and I, I never realized this until I started studying 1 Corinthians 14, is that 1 Corinthians 14 is also all about love. So 13 gives us the principles of love, and then 14 gives us the practical application of that love, and specifically in the Corinthian church. But what we see is that, you know, if 13 is the spring, 14 is the river that flows, or the, the, the little creek that flows out of that spring. And although the gifts of tongues and prophecies, they're no longer around, we still have a lot to learn from chapter 14. And there's kind of two parts uh, uh, obviously, you can split up into many, many more parts, but two big parts to chapter, uh, to verse, there you go, I'm already forgetting. Part one, verses one through 25, and it's all about how it's better to build up others rather than yourself. And then chapter 26, uh, sorry, verse 26 up to verse 40, it's all about orderly worship, right? Orderly worship so that everything, and that kind of worship, it only comes from the love that we see in chapter 13. So, uh, going on, yeah, I'll read that later. So, you know, I've heard many times this kind of idea being spoken in Christianity that, you know what, it's all about just me and God, right? Me and my relationship with God. And in a sense, that's a really good idea, right? Because in a sense that, you know, when we live this life, you know, let's say someone comes along and does something bad to you, right? And, and you could start getting bitter at them and angry. Well, the right response is, you know what? God is with that person. God will judge that person. God will figure out what's, what, what is up with this person. I just need to focus on forgiving them and making sure my heart is right with God, right? Like, in a sense, that's a very good mentality, that it's only about me and my relationship with God, and everything else is kind of like a test, including the people in my life. That is good. But it's possible to take this line of thinking way too far. And, and this is what the Corinthians actually did, is they 
focused too much on their own selves. In a sense, they became spiritually selfish, you could say. Because we, we read in 1 Corinthians 14 that they were, you know, they'd have people that are speaking in tongues and, and they, there's no interpreter there, right? No one's translating and they're just standing there and they're talking. No one understands them. He doesn't understand his own self. And he's, yes, he's getting edification. He's, he's experiencing edification, but no one else. And, you know, and in a sense, you, if you were to ask him or interview him, he'd say, I'm talking to God. I don't care about you guys. I don't care what's going on. I'm talking to it's just me and Jesus here, right? It was all about his personal relationship with God at church, right? The mentality is, well, if this is a blessing to me and it helps me, in my relationship with God, I should keep doing it. And it's, it's really hard to argue with that kind of logic, isn't it? Right? Well, why wouldn't I want this person's relationship to be with, good with God? But the Word of God actually tells us that there is something greater, there is something better than just you and your relationship with God at church, specifically when we gather. And this is where we come to verses 2 through four. Let's read it together. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the one hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So what the Word of God is telling us that when we gather, better than just talking to God, it's better to build up the church. And, and I want to ask, like, what, are, what are some actual examples? Like, do, do we even have that? Does any of that apply today to us here in our church? Well, I, I have an example that I know this happened before. You know, some immigrants that recently moved, they came to our church, and I'm sure most of us would never do this, but, you know, they sat somewhere over there, and it was a spot that this lady always sat at, and she comes up and she says before the service, hey, this is my spot. Why are you sitting at my spot? Move over, right? Why are you taking my spot? And I understand that we, most of us, would never do that. But in a sense, if you try to look into the heart, I can understand that, right? I've been going, I can understand this lady. I've been going here for years, right? This is where I sit. This is where I worship God. This is where I get these experiences with God. And I leave and I'm edified. And I don't want anyone throwing me off. I don't want anyone changing anything so that you know, my experience with God is somehow negatively affected. And I don't care if that means I'm kicking you out, right? In a sense, Paul is saying, be considerate of others when you gather together to worship. When we gather to worship, it's not just about me and God. It's about me, you, and God. It is all of us together. He's saying, be considerate of others. Try to build up others. It's not right to edify just our own selves in church. I've heard the saying before. Other people say, you know what? I come to church just to be with Jesus. And in a sense, that is right. And that is good. But it is also incomplete. 
Because I can be with Jesus anywhere. Jesus is everywhere, right? I could be at home and I could pray longer and better and I could spend a better time with just me and Jesus than I could ever do it here during the service. No, we don't come to the service just to be with Jesus, church. Don't get me wrong. It is to be with Jesus, but also it is with the body of Christ. That's why we come. Christianity is not a solo religion that we can just live on our own. God, we exist in a body. That is the way God has made us. We come to church to be together. And it's natural for us to slip into self-centeredness, even spiritual self-centeredness. And chapter 14 is all about loving others by focusing on building up the church, building up other people, the people that are sitting around you right now, rather than your own self. It's natural to want to build up myself, right? It's natural to want to be edified and to say, this is what I like, this is the way I like it, and I only want that. And in fact, we see this happening in the first church. James writing to the early Christians, he says, James 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Well, you know, we hear people saying, well, I want it this way, or this is the way I think it should be. And then they're, they're fighting and quarreling. This is my spot, don't touch it. But what does the Word of God say? The Word of God says, love does not insist on its own way. The ego, the self-centeredness, says it's all about me. It's all about my desires. It's all about my own way. Brothers and sisters, we, when we come to church and we love God, but we just tolerate one another, that's wrong. That is so wrong, and it goes against everything that the Word of God teaches us. 1 John 4, 20 says, For, for he, this is talking about a person, a Christian, who does not love his brother, or a supposed Christian, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you can't love your brother whom you physically see, then you're not, you don't actually love the God that you do not see. And, and I've said this challenge two weeks ago. I know some of you weren't here, and I'm going to say it again because it's a good one for all of us, including myself. But when was the last time that we came to church with the mentality and the purpose of serving others, of helping someone else? When was the last time I actually prayed about that? Driving to church, Lord, help me be a blessing to someone. I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but somehow help me be a blessing. Help me serve someone in whatever way. Maybe it's just supporting someone. Maybe it's just hearing someone out, just listening to them for 10 minutes. When was the last time our top priority wasn't just to build ourselves up, but to build up someone else? If we haven't tried that, Let's try it. Try it today after service. Try it next Sunday as you're driving to church. Pray, Lord, help me build up someone. And you will be blown away at the way God will use you. Because you are just as equally a part of the body of Christ as everyone here on stage is. And God wants to use you as well for his glory and for the edification of his body. Amen, church? Amen. That's the first part. The next part we have is orderly worship. 
This is verses 26 through 40. And, and Paul says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. This phrase, let all things be done for building up, it's like a spiritual test, a spiritual litmus test for all that we do in church. Starting with Sunday here on stage, but not just that, but everything. Even the conversations after church, your interactions with Christians in your ministries, church. We need to remember all that we do ought to be done for building others up. Let's ask ourselves, examine ourselves. What are my motives in all that I do? Even when I stand and I talk with people, am I just talking to show off? Am I just trying to show off how knowledgeable, how smart, how cool I am? Am I serving to attract attention to myself and really actually build myself up? Or am I, am I trying truly to build up the other person? And I guarantee you, when your focus becomes completely on blessing someone, on building someone else up, and you forget about yourself, God will do amazing things through all of us. It's when we start thinking, well, what are they thinking about me? Who cares what they're thinking about me? Just build people up. It's like C.S. Lewis said, true humility is not... It's not thinking less of yourself, meaning, oh, I'm so lowly, I'm so lowly. But he said, it's thinking less of yourself altogether. Just self-forgetfulness. Who cares? It's about building up others. What's our motivation? In our ministries, in small groups, in our conversations, are we seeking to build up others or are we seeking to build up ourselves? Going on to verse 29, says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. I love, 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 love this verse. Let others weigh what is said. You see, because of the internet, we now have access to the highest quality preachers, dead and alive, right? They are the best of the best. They are the cream of the crops. And they're so good. And they've been doing this for decades. And they're educated. And they've got experience. And it's amazing. And it's a huge blessing. But the dark side of that is we, let's be honest. I'll be honest. We are naturally lazy, aren't we? We're mentally lazy. I, I, after a long day of work, I don't want to sit there and like listen to the message and think like, well, is he saying, is it right or is it wrong? You know, like kind of like weighing what is said. I just want to listen, right? I just want to relax. I'm, I'm lazy, right? And, and, but the word of God says, no, you can't be mentally passive. When the word of God is being preached, we ought to weigh what is said. But when people get used to these very authoritative preachers, they just assume, well, if he said it, it must be true. But the word of God says, no. Weigh what is said. Check against Scripture, right? It's easy to confuse the authority of Scripture and the authority of a Bible teacher who's been teaching Scripture for decades and decades and decades, but the real authority that this preacher has is only the authority that's found in the Word of God. And if what he teaches actually agrees with Scripture and does not contradict it, then he has that authority. But if he doesn't, then it ought to be cast away. It doesn't matter who is preaching here. 
It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what anyone says behind any pulpit. If it doesn't agree with Scripture, it should not be accepted. It's true. It's humbling for us as preachers, but it's true, and that is the right way. That is the body of the body of Christ, all of us ought to weigh what is said. We don't just have these professional Bible people. No, we're all professional Bible people. And it's like we ought to be like the good Bereans. I don't know if you remember from the book of Acts, chapter 17, Paul and Barnabas come into the synagogue in the city of Berea. They come and it says that they were preaching about Christ and that the Bereans were searching the scriptures to see if it was so. They were, cert- they were comparing Paul's words with Scripture, and you know, what we actually see is, as a result, a lot of them believed because they held fast to the Word of God. So, going on, verse 30. It says, If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the, s- let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I think one important quick lesson from all of this is the importance of fellowship in smaller circles. Praise God, we were able to have that at uh, our family camp that we just had. For those of you that didn't make it out, we hope you can make it out next year. We all had a blast, but we just all sat in a circle and just shared, you know, who am I and what is God doing in my life? And that was, I think, very encouraging for everyone. Now, you know, if all of us here tried to stand up and share a word of encouragement, we wouldn't have enough time to do that, right? Uh, it'd be dinner and uh, everyone would be very hangry. Well, this is the importance of just being in smaller groups, being in fellowship with other Christians where you all can be encouraged, all may learn. Just make sure to do it in a peaceful manner. Don't um, interrupt others and let others speak Like the Word of God says, verse 30, let the first be silent. No one should dominate the conversation. That's an important lesson. You know, sometimes there's people that just, in a small group, they just dominate. They just, like, any any pause, they just, like, hop in, right? And if you're scratching your head, like, I wonder who does that? That Probably you, right? If you can't think of the guy that does it, you're probably that guy. So do some self-reflection. But let the first be silent and let others speak. Going on. Verse 33 to 34, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. It seems like they, the Corinthians really had a problem with very curious women who would just interrupt the service, right? They would interrupt the sermon. Excuse me, uh, what did you mean by this, right? And it just, and it was because the context of this passage is disorderly and disorderly worship. And, and what would happen is they would interrupt and the service would completely get like hit off tracks, right? And Paul says, it's forbidden, It's forbidden, and not just in Corinthians, but it says all the churches, it's forbidden. Now, I know women get a hard time from this passage, but I also want to focus on the fact that it's very important for the husband to dig into the Word of God, to be able to answer the questions that his wife might have, right? It's easy to say, oh yeah, women, like... Don't speak in churches, right? Don't preach, don't teach, right? 
But how about the man? We, we, we miss the man. Men, we are the spiritual heads of our families. This is what the Word of God teaches. God has appointed us to be the spiritual head. And, and God is calling us to dig into his word, to study his word, to know his word. And brothers, this is not optional. This is not like a great suggestion, right? This is not first great suggestions 313. No, this is, a, this is a command from God. It's assumed, actually, that we should be able to. I'm, I'm sure Paul knew that each man didn't have an answer to every single question that his wife might have. But it, it was the responsibility was placed upon us, men, to, to go and find that answer if I need to. To dig into God's word, to be able to give that answer or say, hey, let me find out, let me get back to you. We are called by the word of God to know the word of God more than our wives. Men, that is what we are called to. And this doesn't mean that they should ask less questions or study less. That's not what the word of God is implying. This means that we as heads of our family ought to study the word of God more. We ought to put the remote down, turn the TV off, turn off YouTube, delete the app if you can't get unaddicted from it. Put your phone down and study God's word. So that you can lead your family. So that you can truly be the spiritual head. Because when you spend time with God, you will have that spiritual authority to lead your wife. And your wife wants that. She's craving to be led by you. She wants that. May God bless all of us, including myself. I'm not just talking to you as if I've got this all figured out. We all need this. May God bless all of us, men. To spend time in his word. And so that God would bless our families through that time that we spend in his word. In the last verse, it says, But all things should be done decently and in order. He's summarizing from verses 26 to 40. And remember, the root of all of it, of the orderly and the decent worship the root of it is love, loving one another. It starts in chapter 13 and it becomes flesh in chapter 14 about putting others first instead of myself. About, and when we do that, we will have that decent and orderly worship. And what I want to do is my last part of the sermon, I want to end with the first two words of this chapter. Pursue Love. And the, so there's a command, chapter 14, pursue love. The fact that, think about this, the fact that we are commanded to pursue love, what does that tell us? What's the assumption behind that? That tells us, at least one thing, is that love doesn't come to us naturally, right? Like, or else it wouldn't be commanded. That's the whole point of a command. The Bible doesn't command us things that come naturally to us, does it? It doesn't say, make sure to breathe many times a day, right? A few times a minute, like make sure, inhale, exhale, go ahead, take a breath. <sighs> Feels good, huh? But we're not commanded to breathe because it comes naturally. We are only commanded to do things that are difficult to us. 
right? And that's encouraging for me because I know that naturally I'm selfish and it's difficult for me to go and love other people, especially those that don't love me back, right? It's difficult to do that. But I'm encouraged by the fact that the Word of God acknowledges the fact that it's, hey, it's hard. You need to pursue it. Even as born-again Christians, we need this reminder. We need this command. This letter was written to Christians, not just unchristians, right? He says, pursue love. It takes a lot of effort. And pursuing, like think about that word pursue. It doesn't come easily, right? In fact, the Greek word for the word pursue, if you look at it, and if you look at where that same word is used across the New Testament, it's actually used in, in the verses when it talks about the persecution of the church. When he says, when you will be persecuted, right? Or when Paul was persecuting Christians, it's the same word. He's saying, pursue, like, go after it, right? Like, not persecute it in the sense that you're trying to hurt love, but in the sense that love is escaping from you, right? And you have to pursue it, and it, it's really hard, right, to pursue something, right? You're, you get winded, but we are called to pursue. It's a very, very active word. It's something that's getting away from us. We can't just passively be on a little stroll, and we're going to find love at the end of the rainbow no, it's something we ought to chase. And so the question here for all of us right now is, do I, in my heart of hearts, do I actively pursue love towards people, especially those whom are hard to love? Right? Do I actively pursue that love? Church, this is a very important question that we need to get right. And some of you might, if you're honest, you might think, I've never done that before. Now's the time to start. Because this is what the Word of God is calling us to do, to pursue it. And I do want to add here that true love towards people, real love, it's only possible when we first have loved God. Yes, love for people is a sign of the fact that we love God, but love for God actually comes first, and then love for people flows out of that love for Him. And here's the thing, love for God, real love for God, it only comes to us through the grace of God. 1 John 4, 10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the real love. That's where it all starts in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, friends, if there is one thing that I want all of us to remember, just if you're going to remember only one thing from this message and you're going to forget every single other thing, just remember this one thing, that God has loved us truly, actually. God has loved you. God has loved me. And, and not just generically, right? Whoever walks in this room, that's who I'm going to love. No, he has loved all of us personally. He has called us by name. The Word of God says that before I was even born, you knew me. Right now. 
No matter what we're going through, no matter what we're feeling, no matter what clouds are over our heads or if the sun is shining bright, no matter what is happening, all of us can be assured of one reality more than anything else in this life, and it is the fact that God loves me. God loves me. God loves you. God loves us. His big, immeasurable heart is overflowing in love towards every single one of us. And you know why? You know how we can be assured of that? Because he has proved it by giving up his son, Jesus Christ. The son in whom he was well pleased. The one that made him infinitely happy. He gave him up for us. And we who have now believed in Christ, who have cast ourselves upon Christ, God now loves us just as he loves Jesus. Don't believe me? John 17, 23. Jesus praying to the Father as he's about to be taken away and executed. He says, you sent me and loved them. He saw his disciples. Even as you loved me. Church, this is the good news of the love of God. That God has loved us as he has loved Christ. God knows it's hard for us to understand his love. And that's why Paul actually prays in the, to the, for the Ephesians. He says, I'm praying for you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It is so deep. And you know why it's hard for us to understand love? Because of how little we have it in our hearts for one another. That's the reality. But church, it's real. It's big. God's love is more real than we are. And no matter what you are going through right now, I want to remind you of the good news of the love of God in Christ and the cross and the empty tomb. They're proof authentication of God's love for us right now. Now, going back to loving one another, it's easy, isn't it, to love those who love us. Jesus even admits this. He says, Luke 6, 32, if you love those whom love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. I want us to do something maybe you've never done before. But I want you to imagine right now the person that's most difficult for you to love. Maybe in our church or maybe at work or whoever it is, right? Pick that person that's most difficult to love. Imagine them. And in a sense, the amount that we love them, the amount that we love them, is the real measure of how much real love we actually have in our heart. Everything above that, you could argue, is just self-centered love. It's love for people who love us back. It's the real measure. You see, we miss the whole point of life and of Christianity without love. In fact, we miss God himself because God is love. Not just God is loving, but he, the word of God says that he himself is love. 
And if we don't have love, we have nothing. Church, the body of Christ without love is dead. Just like a body without blood is dead. Yes, all the body parts could be there, but love is like that blood. With no blood, the body is dead. Our church, any church, all churches, they will die without love. And I know we have love. I know we have love between one another, but we are called to pursue love even more. We have room to grow, and we are called to grow in that. And not just love for people that like me and that are, and that are like me, but for the people that are most unlike me. You know, thinking about that person that's most difficult to love at this time, let me ask all of us this. Towards that person, can we use 1 Corinthians 13 to describe our relationship with this person? Can we honestly describe our relationship with that person with 1 Corinthians 13? Look at what what the Word of God says. Love is patient, kind, There's no envy, there's no boasting, there's no arrogance, there's no rudeness. We're not insisting on our own way. We're not irritable with that person. We're not resenting that person. We do not rejoice at wrongdoing, but we rejoice with the truth. We are bearing all things with this person. We are believing all things with this person, hoping all things, enduring all things. Can we honestly describe our relationship with this person in this way? You see, when life is over, when we have stepped into eternity, and we're in heaven with God, the only thing that's going to matter when we look each other in the eyes, the only thing is the question, did we actually love one another? That's it. That's the only question that will matter. And we're going to know all things, and we're going to know what each person lived through, and we're going to look each other in the eyes, and the only thing will matter, did we love one another? Church, friends, I don't want us to be ashamed when we are in eternity and we are looking each other in the eyes. In a sense, this whole life is just one big test to see if we will learn how to love the people that are most unlike me. Love is the greatest lesson any human being could ever learn here in this life. It is the greatest accomplishment. It is the highest of highest. It is, there is nothing above. It is the, the, the most, the, the pinnacle of human accomplishment is love. And anyone, no matter who you are, at the bottom rungs of society or the highest rungs, the most elite of elites, all of us can love and should love and we are called to love. And the only thing that matters when this whole pyramid is flattened out in eternity is, did I actually love? But you might ask, 
How do I love when it's so hard? You don't know what he or she has done towards me. The pain that I have went through because of this life, because of this person. Ephesians 5.2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us. We can only find strength to love in the example of Jesus Christ. We, in our sinful human nature, we're incapable of love. I can only selfishly like people. If they do something good for me, I like them. They do something bad for me, I hate them, right? That's, that's the only two options we have. We can't live any other way. We're stuck. But when we're Christians, when we have been born again by the Spirit of God, we can love even those who have hurt us. That's the essence of Christianity. Only Jesus, the Son of God, can both teach us and transform our hearts. Only by looking at His example of how He laid His life down for the people that rejected Him. The people who didn't understand him. It hurts not being understood, isn't it, right? It just feels so bad. It's like, if only they knew, if only they understood my truth. It hurts. And yet Jesus laid his life down for those who did not understand him. Even his closest friends didn't understand him. They didn't seek him. Only in Christ and his example can we truly learn to love. And guess what, church? Jesus has more reasons to not love us than we have to not love our greatest enemy. Jesus has more reasons to not love us than we have to not love our worst enemy because every single one of our sins is a direct assault against the glory and the goodness of God against Jesus Christ. No one has ever sinned against us the way we have sinned against God. That's the reality. No matter how horrible and horribly we have been sinned against, that sin does not compare with what, how we have already sinned against God. And Jesus didn't just come to this earth and say, you know what, guys? You did all these horrible things. I forgive you. Let's go with me to heaven. He didn't just talk the talk. It wasn't possible for us to be forgiven without the wrath of God being satisfied. The the good justice of God had to be poured out upon the evildoers. And that's why the word of God says that he who knew no sin, Jesus didn't know any sin. He never sinned. He became sin for us so that we become the righteousness of God. He didn't just say, I forgive you. He died to forgive us. He took the wrath that we earned by committing sins against him. He took that wrath upon himself. Not only did he get sinned against, but he also took that wrath that that sin incurred upon himself and he just swallowed all of it, being forsaken by God on the cross so that we can be forgiven. Oh, the depth of the love of Christ. Church, this is the depth of the love of Christ, and it truly surpasses knowledge. May the Lord help us not seek to build up my own self when we gather, but to seek to build up others, motivated by a heart of love. As I call the band up, may the Lord 
help us truly love one another. May the Lord help us seek the good of one another. Amen. We're going to have a minute of just prayer time right now. Let's stand. Think about the love of God. Think about what real love is. And ask God to help us. And if you never tasted this love of God, you can come to him and you can experience that love. Let his love into your hearts and let it transform you. And you will live a life you've never even imagined, you never even thought possible. Let him into your heart. Come to him. Cry out to him. He will forgive you and he will give you new life. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your love, for your goodness, for your pure grace that you poured out upon us. We deserve it, Lord. And even now we struggle, I struggle to love those who are not like me, those who don't bless me. Lord, I pray, give me, give all of us strength from you, Jesus, to love in a way that surpasses knowledge, to love in a way that doesn't make sense to the normal, rational, sinful mind. Help us, oh Lord Jesus. And I pray for those who haven't tasted your love, your goodness yet, that they would do so today. They would come to you, for you are calling them. Lord, we thank you, and we pray this in your precious, precious name. Amen.